Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, there, um, and it's chapter 2 and verses 11 through 18, and found on page 976 in the Black Bibles. In light of what we have just heard, may we hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope with God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, may we be humbled now as we come before your word. You have given it as a great light to our souls, which are darkened. You have given it as your will and your testimony, that we would become one with you, that we would learn what you are doing, that we would be spurred on to acts of love and service in this world. May we be humbled this morning, and then may we be lifted up, may we be encouraged by your great grace. Your word has come to us by your mercy and your mercy alone. May we attend to it with humility and with joy. May we hear what you have for us this morning, where you are going to press, where there is weakness, where you are going to speak into those places where our hearts are still darkened. God, may we be receptive. And for those who are here this morning who do not know you, who are standoffish from you, God, would you speak to them this morning, comfort them, show them your love, speak to them this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I wonder if you ever heard about the Christmas truce of 1914. The Christmas truce of 1914. You can probably think back what was happening during 1914. It was World War I. The German, British, and French forces, they were fighting each other on the Western Front. When something astonishing happened, it was around Christmas time. It may have actually been on Christmas Day, at least in some of the places. Something amazing happened. Men who were fighting laid down their arms. They crossed over into neutral territory together and, and made peace. They made peace. It was just for a little while, just for a few days. But the spirit of Christmas compelled them to stop Fighting And these truces became widespread and they were so successful that men began not just exchanging handshakes, but gifts, food, 
This was a world war. Men who only days before were launching bombs at each other and firing rifles at each other were motivated by the spirit of Christmas and came together in peace. That is an amazing story, and I cannot imagine it happening today. Well, it didn't last back then. It did not last. The commanders who were overseeing them were furious with them. They commanded them never do it again. And then bitterness arose when chemical weapons were introduced. Peace would not return. Everyone knows that peace is not easy to come by. And of course on the battlefield. But it's not where peace is usually fought for, for one. But we must admit that peace is not easy to come by anywhere. Sure, we're not lobbing bombs. We're not firing rifles at each other. We're not taking captives. And yet I think we are captive to something just as damaging, something just as catastrophic, though it is spiritual. And it's hostility. Hostility. In our passage this morning, Ephesians 2.14, maybe you heard it. It was there a couple times, that word hostility. It is a universal problem. You could give it a different word, enmity. You could translate that word hatred, hate. Humans do not just fight on the battlefield. Our division, our hatred, our hostility happens in all places, between all sorts of people, for all sorts of reasons. Racial animosity, socioeconomic disparity, marital hostility. This is a Christmas season, and these men, they were compelled to find peace. Maybe we should too. How do we fix it? How do we find peace with one another? Everyone agrees that Christmas is a time to look for peace. What do we sing? Peace on earth and goodwill to all. Is that possible? Is it possible? And I wonder because I don't know if I can do it. I struggle with peace. I struggle to find unity and peace with my enemies. And often my friends. Is there hope for us? And the Bible seeks to answer that question. This passage, it answers that question by going to its root, by exposing the real problem, and by giving us finally a way to lay down our arms, our hostility, and truly come together. And listen, the picture that Paul is going to paint is powerful. Powerful. That is his point in Ephesians. To see God at work in his people, bringing them together to redeem and restore. As Christians, as the Christian church, there is no greater topic than this. So we're going to walk through this passage together. Actually, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the church. But we're starting this morning. Three points this morning as we walk through Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. One, saved from each other. Two, saved to each other. And three, saved in another. One, saved from each other. Saved from each other. Look at Ephesians 2, 11. This is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
Remember that, at, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now you probably know that this is a, a continuation, right? These are not sectioned off. Paul's writing a, a continuous letter. And last week what we saw is that in a sense we are... Our main problem in the world is alienation from God. It is vertical alienation from Him. We need to be saved because we are far off from Him without any hope. By our self-centeredness, we are at enmity with Him. We are at war with Him, James says. And so we need saving. But then he keeps on going. He uncovers this thing. He keeps on painting the picture. And it is this. We do not just have a problem of alienation that's happening vertically. But we are alienated horizontally. We are alienated from each other. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated, listen, from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And that's just the fact of the matter. That's just him stating it very openly. Yeah, you Gentiles, anyone who was not a Jew, you Gentiles are apart from God, alienated from him. But you are alienated from him. Also, you are alienated from each other, from the Jewish people. You are not part of the people of God, of the covenant promise. Now, here's the problem. The way that they knew this, the way they were experiencing this, was all wrong. They knew it. They knew they were not part of the people of God, but the way they knew it, the way they were experiencing it, was all wrong. For the Jews were arrogantly and cruelly rubbing this in their faces. And the Gentiles despised the Jews for it. The Jews, they held their superior position over them. They treated them like dirt. And the Gentiles hated them for it. And what Paul says later is that this created a wall of hostility. The two people separated. When Paul says in verse 11, what does he say? At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. And when he says that, he's not just stating a fact. He's repeating something. He's repeating a cruel thing. He's repeating a term of derision. The uncircumcision, the uncircumcised, it was like being called a four-letter word. It was like being referred to as a terrible racial insult. The worst ethnic slur. The Jews, many of them were saying to the Gentiles, you are not like us. You are not as good as us. We are the circumcision people. That means we are the people of the covenant of promise. You are the opposite of this. You are the uncircumcised. You are outside of the love of God. That is brutal. That is brutal to feel that, to hear that. Down in verse 15, what does it say? For he himself is our peace who has made us both One has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There it is, the dividing wall. Scholars think that Paul is thinking of something physical in his mind. He's not just thinking thinking of something theoretical or or theological. He's thinking of something theological. I'm sorry, of, of, of physical, practical. And it was the temple. 
He's thinking of the temple when he talks about the dividing wall because the temple literally was walled off from Gentiles. When you walked up, you knew if you were a Gentile that you could not go in certain portions of the temple, even if you were a God-fearing Gentile. And they didn't just know this by word of mouth. No, when they walked up, they knew it immediately because there were signs posted all over. Do not come in, but even worse than that. This is what they read. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around this temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Not only are you not inside the covenant community, if you try to get in, you will die. No wonder there was hostility. Now, we do have to ask the question, what's the problem with this? Aren't the Jews just saying it like it is? Isn't this a a, a truth? Yeah, they are the part people of the covenant. They are, have the promise. They're the people of God. They are set apart by him. Paul's making that very clear. So why can't they just say that? Isn't that necessary? They are the chosen ones of God. The Gentiles are. They are of circumcision. The Gentiles are. Or not. So why is this an issue? What Paul is getting at is that the Jews had taken this promise, this gift of God's grace, and they had used it for their own gain. They had used it selfishly. That's an amazing thing. To take God's good gifts and say, these are mine. Elevate them and then feel superior because of them. The Jews were using their identity as God's chosen people to commit acts of evil. Paul talks about in verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Why would he need to do that? These are the gifts of God. These were meant to be for the people to worship, to honor him. But they were also meant to be received with grace and humility, and that's not how they were doing it, is it? That is not how they were doing it. They weren't receiving these gifts with humility or gratitude. They were meant to be a blessing to the world, the light to the nations. They were the covenant people of God, pointing people to salvation. And yet it led to them and their sense of superiority. It led to them treating Gentiles with contempt and hatred. And Gentiles, in turn, how do they feel? How do you feel when someone treats you with contempt? You feel contempt towards them. They despised them. The wall of hostility. The Jews were boasting in their privilege, weren't they? They were boasting in the gifts that God had given them. And it led to their feeling superior. It led to them feeling like they were the only people. And that everyone else other than them was not okay. Now, does that just happen to Jewish people? Is he just really talking about them? Or maybe this is a a case study. Maybe we need to take ourselves out of it as a people because we are not Jews. Yes, we are Gentiles. Well, there's not many Jews here, I don't think. We need to take ourselves out and say, how does this apply to us? I think that this fracture that Paul is talking about, it goes to the root problem in everything, in every hostility in all of our hatred. Anything that makes you feel superior will lead to arrogance. 
That's what Paul is saying. And arrogance will lead to feeling superiority. And superiority will lead to acts of subjugation and hate and suppression. Race. Socioeconomic status. Intelligence level. Political persuasion. Physical beauty. Cultural background. Even morality. The Jews, they boasted in their circumcision, right? They boasted in their physical expression of the promise of God for them. They boasted in the outward sign of their covenant. They took the external things and they clung to them as they were, they were their own. They took the grace of God and turned it into a way to feel and act superior. That is crazy. To receive something by grace and then act like it's all yours. But we all do that. Not with circumcision, I hope, but with everything else. Humans have a tendency to take what is good, to take what is good about us, and elevate it. To make it our identity, and then make others pay for it. To feel superior over them. So if you don't know this factoid, I was the least cool kid growing up. The least cool kid. And I knew it because people told me, and I knew it because it was true. (laughs) I played in marching band. I got bloody noses all the time. I passed out of the side of blood. I still passed out of the side of blood. I dressed like a weirdo. I was not the coolest kid ever. But I'll never forget that one day, I was brought into the inner circle of the cool kids. I'll never forget this, because it it only happened one time. So... The cool kids were playing roller hockey. Well, it turned out that I could play roller hockey too. And I was actually better than them. And they said, hey, come play with us. Sure, I can do that. And I remember feeling a sense of elation, like finally I had made it. It wouldn't last long. Finally I had made it. But then if I look back, I also felt instantaneous superiority. I was with some other, my other friends at the time, and I remember treating them like they weren't there. They didn't play, but I did. And now I was in this inner circle. In my heart, almost instantaneously rose this feeling. I am part of this people now, and you are not. I am good. You are not. I cannot imagine what would have happened had they kept me in their group. They did not. Here's the universal truth. We take what is good about us and we elevate it. And then we hold it over others. We take what we think makes us great, makes us good, and we alienate others by it. Let's just take some examples. Some people elevate race. They elevate the color of their skin. It is your skin color that makes you who you are. Your identity is what this color of your skin is. That happens all over the place. And you would love to think, no, we're past that now, but if this election proved anything, we are not past that. Politics. Politics. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We become so entrenched in our political positions. We come to identify so closely with a party or politician or idea that we see everyone who disagrees with us as misguided, dumb, crazy, even evil. The ideas or party or person is elevated in our lives. These could be very good things, but we elevate them. And if anyone disagrees with us, then they are not just wrong, but evil. 
Money. Money. We know this separates us. It divides us. We see our money. Why? And we see our money as a byproduct of our hard work. Not as the grace of God. We see our money, our earnings, as a result of our ingenuity. When we do that, we look down on others for not making as much as we do. Why don't they have a better job? Why are they so lazy? They must be terrible at saving. Morality. Morality. We build up good moral records. We build up the good works that we do, our righteousness. And then we look down on anyone who does not meet our moral standards. We take our own standard of righteousness, which is always very narrow, and then we alienate others who are not like us. I would never do that, we say. I would never behave like them. I could never be like that. And that becomes the basis for our superiority. And superiority leads to alienation. Culture. It's the last thing I'm going to say. Culture. Culture. And what I mean is all of the non-moral ways we choose to live as a people. Culture. The the idiosyncratic values of a culture. So most of us live in cultural bubbles. You probably know that. We don't get out very much. We live in the place where we feel safe and good. But the problem is that when we live there for too long, we can begin to think that the way that we lead our lives is the only way. We take our our cultural idiosyncrasies and we moralize them. We elevate them. We say this is the only way to live. We take things like cleanliness, music, the way we dress, being on time, job professions, being really organized, being a free spirit, and a million other things. And we take those things and we elevate them. And we say this is what is normal. And anything outside of this bubble is not normal. And we look down on them. And sometimes we really mistreat them hostility. Sometimes even hatred. Race, politics, money, morality, culture. What you look like, how you dress, what you say, what, your, what family you come from, what school you went to. Maybe even your religion. Maybe even you can take your Christianity and hold it over others. What is universally true is that our hearts tell us that what makes us unique is what makes you better than other people. The gifts that you have been given are easily turned into values to judge and condemn others by. And you know what? This doesn't just happen between people groups. It doesn't just happen between strangers. This happens between people who love each other. This happens in friendships. It happens in marriages. It happens in churches. It happens in churches. As a pastor, nothing troubles me or saddens me more when I see, when I feel, when I live out this hostility within this body. I hope you've been asking the question in your mind. Let's ask it openly. What good gift do you elevate to hold over others? What do you use in your life that God has given you that makes you unique and you use it to make, to feel superior? We are saved from each other. We are saved from each other. Point two, 
We are saved to each other. Say from each other, we are saved to each other. Paul says at the end of a part of, of verse 15 that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility, right? He broke it down. But then he says it much more strongly in verse 16. What does he say? That the hostility was killed. And it had to be killed. It was this entity, this thing driving our hearts, fracturing us, that kept us from loving each other truly. Jesus had to kill it. How? How did he do it? That's the question right now. How would he bridge this divide? And his answer is to make the two one, to bring the people together into one. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Now, just listen. So the Jews and the Gentiles, that's everyone. That's every person on the, on the world. It's very comprehensive. The Jews and then everyone else. Everyone else is a Gentile if you're not a Jew. And what is he saying? Everyone in the world must come together. Everyone on earth must come together as one. That is the antidote. That is the plan for peace, to bring the people of God together as one person, or as as you could translate this, into one humanity, to live as one, to be united. Friends, unity is a powerful, powerful thing, isn't it? We are united often with our families. You're united with our, our families. Even when families don't get along very well, if something bad happens to them, you see often families bind together. They remember who they are. They remember they are family by blood and they surround each other, care for each other. But families can fall apart. Family bonds are not unbreakable. But they are powerful, aren't they? Race often binds us together. The color of our skin often binds us together. This is something that I have been learning very slowly about the African-American experience. I do not think Caucasian white people experience things the same way African-Americans do. When something horrific happens to a black person, something really terrible, African-Americans often, listen, they often collectively feel the pain of that together. After hundreds of years of mistreatment, they have a special common bond. We do not totally understand. That is a powerful unity. You've seen that displayed in our country this year. But it only goes so far. Racial bonds even are not unbreakable. We experience unity as citizens of a country, don't we? As tragic as 9-11 was, it was simply astounding to see the people of this country bind together to become united. It seems like everyone at that time, at least for a little while, they came together for the sake of this nation. I even remember Rosie O'Donnell. I remember her telling this story. Rosie O'Donnell did not like George Bush. And yet when he came running out onto that field, she was there in... in, the, in um, at the, at the baseball game, the New York Yankees' first baseball game after 9-11, she was sitting in the seats, and when George Bush came running onto the field to throw that first pitch, she says that she burst into tears. 
She was proud of him. She was proud of her country. Now, you know that feeling did not last. That bond is strong. It is powerful. It is uniting, but it does not last. Not even, not citizenship, not race, not even family is enough to unite us to make lasting peace. And so Paul says something much more powerful is needed and possible. Paul says that God is doing what? He is making a new humanity. And he is doing it by giving them a shared identity. A shared identity not in what they do and what they look like in their uniqueness. He is giving them a shared identity in God and God who sits on the throne. When he is at the center of the hearts of his people, nothing can divide them. What unites them in God of the universe is what will keep them will break down the walls of hostility. D.A. Carson puts it bluntly. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Friends, the church is not meant just to be another place of division. It is not meant to be this place that's just set aside like any other club. It is a place where peace is one. The church is meant to be a wonderfully beautiful, diverse tapestry. A brilliant and colorful tapestry of God's creation. Different colors and personalities and gifts. Different backgrounds and struggles. A people existing in a common spirit for a common purpose in peace and unity. A people who become one. Do you know how radical it would have been for people to hear an ethnic Jew an upstanding Jew like Paul, to say this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. With the coming of Christ, everything is different now. Enemies becoming one. And so as Christians, our identity is not in how unique we are physical gifts, personal gifts, the things that God has given us. What sets apart is, us apart is our common love for God. We are Christians first, not a tax bracket. We are Christians first, not a race. We are Christians first, not a culture. There is nothing external that should divide us, not our looks, our money, our race, our abilities, our culture, not even our morality. Now, I want you to listen to this very closely. This is important. It is only when we find our common unity in Christ that we can truly celebrate what is different about us. Let's say that again. It is only when we find our common unity in Christ, our faith in Christ, that we can truly celebrate what is different about us. To be united is not to lose your uniqueness, right? To be united is to exist in a community where your uniqueness can be celebrated. 
We do not stop being black or Latino or white or female or male or introverted or extroverted or tall or short. That stays the same. But when God is our king, when he is our God, we do not use these differences to feel superior. We see these differences as things to celebrate. Friends, brothers and sisters, the goal is union with each other. We are not just divided. We are saved to each other, the two becoming one. That is an amazing thing. That is a powerful thing. Last point. Saved in another. So how does God do it? How does he bring people who are so disparate, who are so different, who hate each other together, who are natural enemies? How does he bring them together in love? Well, Paul's answer always is a changed heart, right? Not changed circumstances. Not a changed culture. We don't just need more time. I think that we could live a billion more years and we would still fight. We would still hate. The problem is the darkness of our hearts. And if you do not think your heart is dark, look again. Last week we said that we are curved in on ourselves, right? That is the main problem with humanity. Incurvitus in se, that's the Latin. Totally self-centered, selfish. It motivates our bad actions for sure, but also our good actions. We're doing things for number one. But this is also the very reason for our enmity, our hatred. Only selfish people can take what they received by grace and feel superior for it. Our hearts are corrupt, selfish, and they must be radically altered. And so I'm just going to give you two ways. I think they're here. God changes our hearts by taking away something from us and giving something to us, taking away something from us and giving something to us. First, he takes away something from us, and what does he take away? Our boasting. Our boasting. Verse 14. For he, this is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So what is he saying there? Jesus in his death on the cross, he made peace by abolishing the law. This was the, the, the Old Testament, the old ways that we follow, the dietary restrictions, the sacrifices, He took those and he he abolished them. They are swept away. He took away the outward signs of God's covenantal promise. And listen, I hope you can hear what that means. God is taking the things that they were boasting in. He is taking away from the Jews the things that they were using to subjugate others, to feel superior about. He came in his death on the cross and he swept it all away. And now we know we have no reason to boast. Only in Christ are we made whole. Only by his death and resurrection are we made alive. He is telling them that you don't have anything. Apart from Jesus, you are lost. Listen to verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, we know the Gentiles are already far off, right? We've established that. They don't have the covenant of promise. They don't have God. They're not a part of his people. They needed peace preached to them to bring them near, and they were. 
But it doesn't just say them. Someone else needed peace preached to them. It was those who were near. And who was that? It is the Jews. Sure, they had the commandments. Yes, they were set aside as the people of God. But what was clear in the coming of Jesus, they needed something more. They were far off. Peace to those who were near. They were not actually in. They were lost apart from Christ. And so what does this say? We are all the same. We are all the same. We are all humbled under the reality that our sin has alienated us from God. We have nothing to boast about. This is what the gospel does. It takes away our boasting. It takes away our basis for arrogance and superiority. It is constantly reminding us there is nothing in us that saves us. It is entirely by Him and by His grace for our joy and our peace. We are all the same. I bet you know this expression. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. He takes away our boasting. He takes away our boasting. But then He gives us something. And He gives us Christ himself. In love, he gave us Christ that we would be united with him. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What was the cross? It was the ultimate place of derision. It was the ultimate place of scorn. Anyone who was lifted up onto that tree, nailed to that wood, he would have looked up and he would have said, they are the worst of the worst. He would have looked up and said, whatever they did, they deserved it. And he would have felt superior. He would have felt superior to Jesus Christ, the only person in the history of the world who did not deserve it. He is the only one who is truly superior, who is truly good. And yet he went there. He was lifted up as the object of scorn and shame for us. And we were united with him. We were united with him on that cross because on that cross he killed the hostility between humans and God. And he brought us together as one. Paul says something amazing, Galatians 6. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Not all of our boasting is taken away. We boast in Christ. We boast in the cross of Jesus. He is our common cause. He is what unites us, not skin color, not tax bracket, not culture, not IQ. What unites us is Jesus. He literally is our peace. We are literally united as one people in him. Friends, brothers and sisters, what do we believe? Do we believe this? And is it showing? Is it showing in our church? Is it showing in your hearts? Is it showing in our actions? Are we growing in our Christ-centered, sacrificial love for each other? I was severely convicted this week when I read this from Russell Moore. He said, we are not getting anywhere as long as we gather in church with people we'd gather with if Jesus were still dead. 
We are not getting anywhere as long as we gather in church with people we'd gather with if Jesus were still dead. What do we believe? Well, people feel grace as they walk in through our doors and enter into our communities. Will people feel the radical safety of the gospel? Will they come in saying, I can share my life, every part of my life with this people. I feel safe here. Will they feel a part? Will they feel like they want to join this oneness in Christ? Ray Orton puts this well. The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat each other. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty. I love that. May we believe this profound reality. May we lay down our arms. May we be a generous, loving, celebrating people. We're not going to always be perfect. We're not going to live up to this ideal always, but I pray that we are striving towards it by his grace. For the sake of the people who are not in this building, who are far from God, through our oneness, through our love. May they know him. Let's pray. Thank you, O Jesus. Thank you for this word that you have delivered to us for our sake. It was delivered so long ago and yet it is speaking directly into our hearts. May we be reminded finally, fully, that we are one in your Son. That we are one in Christ Jesus that we have been brought into your house, into your community, into your promise. Not that we may boast in ourselves, but that we may boast in Christ. I pray that the song of this church is in Christ alone. Not in, in Christ somewhat. In Christ in certain parts of my life. In Christ alone. And may that work itself down into our hearts to each other in love and mercy and grace and then out to our communities. God, this does not stop at these doors. Our love goes out beyond this. Our radical other-centeredness goes beyond these doors. Our in-Christness goes out to the world. We want people to see Jesus. We want them to see your Son. And so would you make that happen, oh God? Make that happen by your name, by your mercy. In Christ alone. Amen.